This is the Mindy and Carl on Money Podcast. Today we're speaking with J.L. Collins, author of The Simple Path to Wealth, Pathfinders, and How I Lost Money in Real Estate Before It Was Fashionable. Of course, we'll talk about books. We could not pass up that opportunity. In a crazy turn of events, we'll also be talking about his butt. That voice. It's, it's a little bit deeper than that. Speak in the J.L. Collins voice. That voice. I can't do it either, so I'm not going to even try. <laughs> but you make me try? Sure. We're also going to talk about sabbaticals. His first job selling fly swatters door to door. In short, this is the J.L. Collins interview that you have not heard before. So if you're a J.L. Collins fan, stay tuned. And since we're talking about books in this episode, today's show is sponsored by books, our favorites to be exact. Go to MindyOnMoney.com slash books to see which books we like and why. That's MindyOnMoney.com slash books. All right, let's jump into the show. So I have a pretty embarrassing story to tell, and it involves you, JL. But before we get into that, <laughs> Mindy's laughing already, and she's involved in the story. How am I involved in this story? You'll know when I tell it. Before we get into that, JL, uh, let's go deep. How do you want to be remembered? Oh, I'd much rather hear your story. <laughs> <laughs> in a moment. It involves your butt. It involves my butt? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, not... And now I don't want to hear this story. I don't think anybody else should ever hear this story either. So I, I have, I, you know, I hate the, that question that you're asking because I, first of all, I don't particularly care how I remember it. I'll be dead and gone and, you know, who cares? I will, I, I will make a prediction. I will most likely be remembered for having been the first guest on your new podcast. That That will be my claim to fame, but... Other than that, I, I, I have I have no idea. What do you think JL will be remembered for? I like the brown nosing aspect of that answer, so I'm gonna say being the first guest on the Mindy on Money podcast. There you go. <laughs> I mean, he also wrote a book. A couple of books. Three three books so far? So far three books. Okay. I'm going to say that I think JL will be remembered for changing a lot of lives. His book, The Simple Path to Wealth, taught so many people about FI and how to invest properly. Just reading Pathfinders, which we'll talk about in the next episode, uh, you can see he's touched lives all over the world. Yeah, brown nosing. But I think that's what you'll be remembered for, JL. Well, you know, on a more serious vein, I, I think that's probably right. And I I'm uncomfortable with that because it just feels so surreal to me. But I do have people, you know, telling me almost every day how profoundly my work has changed their lives for the better. And that's stunning to me. First, I mean, it's just I I, I never anticipated that that would be the case. And it's it's pretty humbling. And and, uh, you know, obviously it's gratifying to hear. So I'm sure that the serious answer to the question is that's what I'll be remembered for. And probably primarily as the author for The Simple Path to Wealth, because of my three books, at least so far, that one is, is far and away been the, been the bestseller. And it continues to stay at the top of the Amazon chart. So it looks like it's going to be around for a while. So, yeah, that's probably the legacy I'll leave behind. Awesome. And we have a link to it. If you go to MindyOnMoney.com, 
slash books. There's a link to Simple Path to Wealth and JL's other two books. Okay, this is too morbid. Let's talk about his butt. Yeah, I don't like that question either because <laughs> it's talking about your death and what happens after. I'd rather talk about my death than my ass. <laughs> this butt, it's a family show. Stop, just get on with it. So I'd like to talk about the first time we met you, and I'll back up a second because it's actually more like the first time I saw you. It was at FinCon, and I knew you were going to be there, but we had never met you or talked to you. And I'm I'm shy, and I was super shy back then, so Mindy and I were coming up an escalator, and I see you. I knew it was you. I think I kind of saw the side of your head. You were talking to someone else, and I, I think I said something like, oh, wow, look at that. It's JL. It's JL. I got to take his picture. But I was too embarrassed or shy to ask you for like a selfie or, or something like that. So I got out my phone camera and I took a picture of you talking to this other person. And I mostly got your backside in the picture. But that, that was my first experience with you. <laughs> so do you have this framed on your wall somewhere? <laughs> we were going to put it behind us today, but the picture didn't come in in time. I like the picture that is behind you. <laughs> We had to get up at six o'clock in the morning to go to take this picture of the bull where there's nobody behind, like nobody surrounding it. I don't know if you've ever been to the actual bull in New I, York I, City. I have not, but I've seen, obviously, it's it's a, it's a very well photographed. It is swarmed by people all the time at six, yeah. at six o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So we went to, we got up super early and took that photo. But I will not, I will not put a photo of your butt up there. Are you saying I don't have a cute butt? Is that what we're hearing here? Wow! Don't insult our first guest. It's not what I said at all. (laughs) JL, am I a stalker? Does that photo make me a stalker, or am I going to be? Is there going to be a restraining order after this? I think this whole conversation is putting you in the stalker category. (laughs) (laughs) What I remember from that conference is. JL Collins has this super deep Darth Vader voice, right? And I had lost my voice on the way to that conference and it was starting to come back, but I sounded like Minnie Mouse and nobody at this conference had ever met me before. So here's me with this horrible Minnie Mouse voice talking to Darth Vader himself. And I'm like, wow, I feel like such a moron talking. I'm just not going to say a word. Mindy, I am your father. (laughs) You know, actually, I have a, I have kind of a funny FinCon story around my voice. Uh, I forget which FinCon it was, but this would have been back in, you know, 2013, 14, 15, in that range. And J.D. Roth at the time was doing the Master of Ceremonies uh, job. And he came up to me uh, and, he, and he said, you know, I'm, 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 doing these little, asking people to do these little five-minute segments before the actual speakers. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to do one of those and tell the story of, the origin story of your blog. And I said, sure, I'd be I'd be happy to. And I think this was in the morning and it, this was going to be after lunch. Uh, you know, so it was the first speaker after lunch and I was going to go on five minutes before that. Well, as you know, at FinCon, you're talking all the time and it puts a real stress on your voice. So later that morning, I'm sitting in one of the breakout sessions watching, uh, watching that speaker. And all of a sudden, I realize that I've completely lost my voice. <laughs> and I'm maybe 
two hours from the one o'clock when I'm supposed to do up this five minute thing. And I mean, I completely lost it. That's never happened to me before or since. So I, I walked out of this particular uh, talk and I went up to my room and I'm, I didn't have any lozenges or anything, but I'm gargling. And finally I, I got my, my voice back enough that I could barely croak out a little bit like this. Right. So I hear, well, <clears throat> you know, it is what it is, but I think I can get through the five minutes. So <laughs> I go into the auditorium where the big talks are given and I'm sitting in the front because I know JD is going to call me up and I'm hoping that I'll, that I have enough of this croaky voice to get through. And JD goes to the microphone to introduce me. And the way he introduces me is to go on at great length about my wonderful voice. It's going to be for everybody to hear my wonderful voice, no matter what I said. He just went on and on and on. <laughs> so I, I mean, I come up the, you know, uh, up the little steps onto the stage and over to the podium and we shake hands and, well, they got to hear something different. <laughs> <laughs> That J.D. Roth is full of beep. Well, of course, he didn't know. I mean, in fairness to J.D., he had no idea that between the time he asked me in the morning and the time he invited me on the stage that this had happened. So, <laughs> man, you're, you're going to have PTSD as a result of this FinCon, me photographing your backside, J.D. Roth. Uh... This is why I don't go to FinCon anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay, let's get into some serious questions. Is is there such a thing as a born saver? Well, wow, that's that's a, that's actually is a serious and a pretty interesting question. I I and one that I've thought about not so much as the saver part, but is there is you know somebody born to be naturally inclined to be good with money? And my own experiences, I remember from a very small child. Uh, saving money. And I know my parents encouraged that, but I don't remember needing the encouragement. When I was about five or six, uh, my dad was a manufacturer's rep and he sold uh, housewares. And for instance, at one point he had a line of aluminum furniture and he'd have samples of these things to take around to his, his customers. And at the end of the season, you know, the manufacturer would come out with a new line for the following season. And my dad would give the aluminum furniture to my mother, who would then sell it, you know, on the on the local in those days in the local paper, you know, she'd run ads to sell the stuff. Well, at one point, he, he had a line of fly swatters, you know, little handheld fly swatters. And when that season was over, you know, they these were low dollar or low price things, you know, and my mother wasn't interested in trying to sell those. So he gave them to me and I went around selling them for a nickel. I went around door to door. I, I don't think people let their kids do this anymore, but in those days, and I, again, I was like five or six. I went around door to door selling these things. Uh, it's amazing to me how many people said no. Because um, <laughs> I think I was a moderately cute kid. I mean, and it's, I guess the nickel was more money then than it is now. But anyway, some people said yes. And I remember how thrilling it was to earn that money and, and how gratifying it was to save those nickels. 
So, yeah, I think I was probably pretty close to a natural born saver. Um, but, you know, there you go. Yeah, I've thought about it, too. And I, I think saver is too specific of a thing. But in my case, I think I was, you know, I'm not sure what it was, maybe a little bit insecure. I, I just loved money. So I would go door to door trying to shovel driveways and all that kind of stuff too. And my siblings had no interest in, in those things. And I'm not sure why, just, I know I was born with something different to say it's a saver is probably the wrong word, but definitely some quality that caused me to want to earn and hoard money. Yeah. I don't I, like the word hoard, but. <laughs> it's, it's apropos here. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there is that. I, I always had the drive to earn money as well. And I, when I was in high school, uh, you know, I went out for the football team freshman year and I liked that I'm a pretty big guy and I was a big kid and, and, and I liked it well enough, but I, I also was at the age where I could get a part-time job and working was just much more appealing to me. Uh, you know, I, it had the same kind of camaraderie with the, you know, as, as being on a team did, but they paid me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and the football team didn't pay me. I guess nowadays, if you're good enough, they do pay you. But in those days, so, you know, it was kind of a no-brainer for me. I mean, I liked earning money. I, I, I've always liked getting paid. And the lack of brain trauma is pretty good, too. Hang on a second, guys. Somebody just came to the door, so there's going to be a little interruption here. Maybe they're selling fly swatters. So, JL, is your illustrious experience as a Fleiswater salesman your first money memory? Yeah, actually it is. I mean, it was the first time I earned money. And again, I'm like five or six years old. And yeah, so that would be my first money memory. I didn't get an allowance or anything. And particularly, I never got an allowance, not at that age. And did you use your uh, vast earnings to buy anything or did you really just save it all? You know, I I don't remember spending it, so I'm going to guess I saved it. I remember I liked saving it, and I liked watching it grow. The spending memory I have uh, is there was one day I, I was out as a kid, and I was probably maybe six or seven, eight, somewhere in that range, and I found a $5 bill on the street. And that was huge in those days. I mean, where I'm going to date myself as a geezer, I am, but this would have been in like 55, 57, you know, in that age range. So five bucks was a lot of money. And I was thrilled. And I promptly went to, to the local toy store and to spend it. And, and literally, it was so much money, I couldn't spend it all. I couldn't figure out enough things to buy with it. That's how far five dollars. You know, it was probably like finding fifty dollars today, which for a kid that age you can just imagine. And then, uh, so I bought all this stuff. I was thrilled. I still probably had, you know, a dollar ninety eight left or something. And I went back and and that was when I told my parents, you know, because I I brought all this stuff and and I was very excited and. Then I got the bad news. They said, well, you know, we have to try to find out who that money belongs to. And you're going to have to give it back. And, you know, I was horrified because, of course, 
I'd spent a big portion of it. I didn't have a lot of a lot of it to give back. And uh, I don't know how my parents went out trying to find the rightful owners, but they were unsuccessful, which was <laughs> which was one of the great strokes of good fortune in my life. So, but that's the only spending memory I actually have of those days. Did you drop this twenty? Uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> Besides those toys, what is something you have purchased that you regret? You know, if I, by the way, if if it had been twenty dollars that I'd found instead of five, I probably would have said, you know what, I'm fi. I'm done. <laughs> I don't have to go to school anymore. There's going to be no work for me. Fi <laughs> at five. Yeah, our kid tried to do a similar play. She told us, "Hey, Dad, I want to be fi." Like, okay, that's great. She's like, no, I don't think you understand. I'm like, well, what don't we understand? She's like, I'm done now. I'm done with school. I'm, I just want to be fine right now. Like, <laughs> like there's this little thing called education and work that has to happen in between and making the money and investing. So and she, she doesn't appreciate that part. Well, right. She said, Dad, you're uneducated and you don't work. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great point. She was just following her role model. Yes. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, I can't. To go back to your question, uh, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything I, I really regret. I mean, I know there have been, been things that I've bought that, uh, you know, have been disappointing because they didn't turn out to be quite, you know, as well made or as good as I thought they would be. I do, again, going back to childhood memories, I remember at one point when I was a kid, they were advertising on TV this fireboat toy and they had all these great you know action things this fireboat and spraying water and blah 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 so i i badgered my parents to tell santa claus that that's what i wanted for christmas and sure enough under the tree there was this fireboat and that was a huge disappointment it wasn't anything like it had been on the television ads, which was my first lesson that advertising lies, which is the lesson I tried to impart to my daughter immediately. So I guess that's, you know, that's probably the biggest memory I have along those lines. I guess I've been a more cautious shopper ever since. Was the fireboat toy or the condo in Chicago a bigger regret? Well, the condo in Chicago was certainly the more expensive mistake, uh, and it was brutal going through it at the time, but it also gave me a great story to tell, which I actually tell in my second book, How I Lost Money in Real Estate, before it was fashionable, a very short book. Uh, it's a humorous tale, because after decades, I can see the humor in it. Uh, but there are also a lot of very valuable lessons, I think, that are embedded in it. And I got a wonderful illustrator to to uh, illustrate it, to goes along with kind of the humorous, self-mocking theme of, of that book. So, uh, so I did get that out of it. So I guess looking back, I don't actually regret the condo anymore. But at the time, at the, at the time it was making me suicidal. Okay. Yeah. Um on the other side of that, what is the best thing or experience that you have purchased? 
what well probably my travel would fall into that category and and that's probably not what you're asking i think you're asking for what thing you know like a car or a or a you know a fireboat or something like that and i you know i've never been enamored of things in in particular uh you know we bought uh this little cottage on lake michigan that we call kabanda five six years ago now and and we've really enjoyed that and it was a bit of a disaster when we bought it and we've had to put some money into it but it turned out to be less of a disaster than i expected so because my expectations were so low the surprises tended to be pleasant ones so I suppose that might be rank high, high in terms of things that have been been great purchases. In that case, though, I'd argue that you didn't purchase a thing; you purchased an experience. I, I see the photos you take of the lake at dawn, and I've, I've had the pleasure of visiting you there and the privilege of visiting you. So I, I don't think you bought a thing. I think you bought an experience. Well, the photos, uh, the photo credits go to my wife uh, Jane. She's the I never think to take pictures of anything. I never took pictures on my travels. I don't carry a camera. I guess we all carry a camera now with this, but I, I, I never remember that it has a camera. I'm just usually irritated that it's not good at making phone calls. So yeah, the photo credits go to, to Jane and she's taken some stunning photographs uh, there. And you're right. I mean, it is what makes it pleasurable is the experience of it, but that's true of anything. I think, you know, when you bought your uh, your sports car, your NSX, you know, I mean, you're buying a thing, but it's the pleasure you get out of driving it. So uh, I guess it's in many ways, it's both. Yeah, that that's absolutely right. Funny enough, the, the best experience I had with the NSX was I went to a meetup of other NSX owners and hung out with them. Because if you've got if you've got the car in common, you probably like to talk about cars and other similar stuff. So I remember at one point, all the cars were parked out front and we were all standing back the guy's backyard. We couldn't even see the cars and we were talking about who knows what. So it wasn't the car that brought me happiness. It was the community around the car and how funny that was. We weren't even, we couldn't even see the cars when that happened. Now, see, I would have hoped that you would say your best experience was that car, with that car was when I went with you when you bought it. But that is, that is, that's part of the community experience because, and you did get to go visit with the true story that was in Wisconsin, but that was part of it too. I got to visit with you and come up and see you twice when I went to look at it and when I went to purchase it. Yeah. So yeah, you're right in a roundabout sort of way. (laughs) I also think though that travel is a very valid answer to this, what's the best thing you purchased because- you enjoy traveling and it costs something to travel and you can use your money to better your life. And if traveling betters your life, then that's the best thing that you've purchased. You know, and I think you're right about that, Mindy. And it's interesting too, when I, when I look at when our daughter was growing up, uh, fortunately she was not a kid who was into designer clothes and and that kind of kind of stuff uh because i would have been very reluctant to spend money on on that because i just don't see any value in it she loved traveling from the get-go 
And she did a lot of it as a kid, which, of course, was not cheap. It probably would have been cheaper if she'd been into the designer clothes. But I never had any money. You know, she said, Dad, I have this opportunity to go on this trip. The answer to that was always yes, because I saw value in it. And, you know, in where I would not have seen value in in, you know, spending it on different kinds of goods or, or what have you. And that that seems a little weird to me because, you know, why would you be so liberal in spending money on your kid in one way and so reluctant the other? But there you go. But uh, we wound up with a very well-traveled daughter who still loves to, uh, still loves, I remember when she was 12 years old, she said to me at one point, she said, you know, Dad, it's so unfair. And I said, what's that? She said, well, you've been more places than I have. <laughs> I said, Jessica, you're 12. <laughs> I've had decades to, to more, more, more time to travel. <laughs> and of course, within by the time she was in her mid-20s, she'd been more places than I have. So it didn't take her long to catch her up. <laughs> yeah, and she's been more places at 12 than most other 12-year-olds. She's been more Probably. places at 12 than most 25-year-olds. Probably. And that's because she was willing to forego the fancy clothes. <laughs> so you use the word values a couple of times. And on last week's episode, we talked about the concept of enough in terms of having enough money so that you can retire early. And one of the things that we put into the the enough worksheet, the bonus worksheet for anybody who wanted to download it was, you know, figuring out your values so that you could, you know, determine how much you wanted for your retirement. Um, Do you have any words of advice for people to, who might be like struggling with, with figuring out what they truly value the most? Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think it's an important question for people to ask, especially if they're trying to figure out how much they need to put the lifestyle they want together. Uh, I'm not sure I have any great advice on that on that subject. Uh, you know, when I was on my journey, I wasn't even aware of the concept of financial independence. I just knew that I, I wanted to have what I thought of as FU money which meant I had enough money to make bold decisions, you know, to step away from work uh, periodically. But I never thought about uh, retiring early or, or not working at all. I, I mean, I enjoyed my career. I just didn't want to have to do it all the time. So, but yeah, if you're thinking about accumulating enough money that you're not going to work again, you definitely need to think about what kind of lifestyle you expect that money to support. And of course, you know, I think the 4% rule is a great guideline to that. And it's a pretty simple formula. You know, if if you need $40,000 a year to live on for the lifestyle you want, you multiply that by 25. And that tells you how much you need to have invested. And of course, the answer to that is a million dollars. The corollary of that is if you have a million dollars invested and you're wondering, do I have enough? Well, you take 4% of that, that's going to be 40,000. And then you're, you ask the question, is 40,000 enough for me to live on every year? And if it is, you're golden. If it's not, then either you need to adjust your living expenses 
or you need to keep working and, and building that million dollar portfolio. That brings me to my next question. You did something that I think is really impressive, and I'll, I'll back up a second. When I was in college, I remember going to a career counselor and getting my resume together, and the counselor was like, well, when you start in the workforce, you never want to have any kind of gap in your resume because that's going to be a huge signal that you got fired or something went wrong in your career. So you need to find a job and you need to work until retirement. And now things have changed. It's more of a gig economy. People have short-term jobs and it's encouraged even to take time off or sabbaticals. But you, way back when, you did not have enough money, as you just mentioned, to quit. But you still took time off. I, I think your first job you took, I don't remember how much you had, maybe five or $10,000, which was a lot, but not nearly enough to retire. And you just quit. With that. And, and uh, at one point I decided, well, I'm going to go in and talk to my boss and see if I can negotiate maybe just going away for four months because there was a really cheap airfare to get to Europe in those days that was a four-month time horizon. You left on a certain day, you had to come back on a certain day. Uh, and they said no. And uh, and I didn't realize things were negotiable in those days. And they probably didn't, had never been asked that kind of question by anyone. So it seemed out of the, you know, the obvious answer was no. And I thought about that for a couple of weeks. And I went back and I said, well, as much as I love the job, and it took me two years out of college, by the way, to get this first professional job. And I really did like it. But I decided that I wanted to go to Europe. And so I went in and resigned. And I, it wasn't a negotiating ploy on my part. Uh, so I was stunned at the response. We said, well, why are you going to quit? And I said, well, you know, I really want to do this trip to Europe for a year. He said, well, hang on, don't do anything rash. Let me talk to the, it was a small company. Let me talk to the owner. And you know, in a couple of days, they got back to me and they said, you know, if you're willing to commit to coming back after four months, then we'll hold your job for you. They weren't going to pay me, of course. But so, you know, that that got me to Europe. And I think that's an impressive mindset. That thought would have never crossed my mind to take time off. I'll tell you something pathetic, JL. <laughs> this is super path pathetic. From the time I started working to the time I retired from the time I was FI. So it was like the age of 25 to... When did I quit? A I don't know, ago. like 43. I never took more than one week off of work. And I don't think I even considered taking more than a week off. So what you did is impressive. And I'm not sure if you have any other comments on that. I, you know, if I had had to work until I was 40 and never took it, uh, more than a week off, I <laughs> I would have retired too. If I, <laughs> if I, I think the thing that allowed me to have a lengthy career is I, is I took these sabbaticals on a semi-regular basis, whenever the spirit moved me, the, you know, the shortest was three months, the longest was five years. And you're right. It, it created problems on the resume that I had to be a little bit creative, uh, to, because you, you couldn't just say, yeah, I was out fooling around traveling for a few months. That would, that would not have been acceptable in those days. Witness protection. I can't talk <laughs> about it. That's right. <laughs> That's right. JL, if you could give your 20-year-old self some advice, what would that be? Well, this is going to sound a little self-serving, but uh, I would have loved to have been able to hand, hand my 20-year-old self the simple path to wealth. Uh, because, you know, that, it took me decades to figure that out. 
and I was really wandering in the wilderness. And, you know, the truth is it really is simple. And if you have the right mindset, it is really easy. And it's extraordinarily powerful in terms of the result it gave you, that it gives you in your life. And so I spent a lot of those decades worrying about uh, about how this was going to all pan out. And I didn't have to worry. And especially if I'd known what I know now and what's in that book, you know, I would have been in index because, you know, Jack Bogle coincidentally started the first index fund in 1975, which was the same year I first began investing. That's the same year I bought my first shares of stock. If, you know, if I'd known about index funds, I mean, things would have been just so much easier and so much more powerful. And there would have been so much more direction, you know, again, wandering in the wilderness was, I guess, kind of fun in a way, but it it also, and I didn't know anybody else who was doing what I was doing at the time. And so it was a lonely path and I was filled with a lot of self-doubt about, about why is anybody else doing this? And there was no way in those days to, I'm sure there were other people doing it, but there was no internet. There weren't even personal computers in those days. Uh, you know, so there was no way to connect with people outside of your immediate community and there was nobody in that doing it. So, yeah, I mean, I would have loved to have, I, I hear from people who say, man, I, I wish I'd come across your book when I was 40 instead of 50 or, or 30 instead of 40 or, you know, and I'm like, yeah, me too. Wish I'd had it (laughs) before I had to write the thing when I was 65, (laughs) Yeah. I don't think it's self-serving. I give your book to a lot of 20-year-olds. Yeah, well, I hope some of them read it. <laughs> I hope so, too. We do have a stack of them that we hand out. We've got a bunch of them on our bookshelf. I gave two of them away at our last summer party. I have to follow up with our neighbors and see if they read it. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. Would, be, that would be really interesting to see if they read it. But, yeah, I just sent it to uh, Brittany Reynolds who is on TikTok at Brit underscore Reynolds. And she is on a debt payoff journey. She accumulated $36,000 in debt and decided I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to move out of my apartment in the Bay area, move back home with my parents so that I can take all of the money that I'm making and throw it at my debt and wipe this out. And she doesn't really know anything about investing. And as we were talking on uh, the Bigger Pockets Money podcast a few weeks ago, she was just so excited and genuine to learn about money. And she's really doing a great job with her money, um, paying off her debt, and she'll be debt free around June. So I sent her a copy of your book a couple of days ago, just so she could start learning about investing. And, you know, what I like about the book so much is that you wrote it for Jessica when right. she was younger. So it's not filled with all of this, oh God, what does this word mean? Now I have to go look it up. Oh, what does this phrase mean? I don't even understand this. Forget it. I'm done. It's geared towards, what was she like 17 when you started writing these these uh, originally blog posts? Um, I think she yeah. was pretty young, right? She was in college. Oh, she was in college. Okay. But still, it's it's not geared towards people who are studying finance and know all the words. And it's geared towards somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. 
You know, it, it, she and I had, uh, she came home from college one day and I had managed to turn her off to all things financial by pushing it too soon and too hard. And, but that didn't stop me from continuing to push hard. <laughs> and she came home from college one time and I, I probably started into one of my financial lectures and she stopped me and, and she said, you know, dad, I get it. I know this stuff is important. I just don't want to have to think about it all the time. And that was an epiphany for me because in that moment, I realized that I'm the odd one out. And and you guys, and probably a lot of people listening, are the odd ones out. We like this stuff. But most people, like my daughter, have better things to do with their life. <laughs> and they're smart enough to know that if they get money right, their life will be much better. They'll have many more options available to them. They just don't want to have to obsess about it all the time. And so that's when I wrote The Simple Path to Wealth. It was written for my daughter, who that's who she is, and for people like her, that they know that it's important. They just want to know, how can I do this simply and effectively and then get on with my life doing the things that I really care about? And so that's who it's written for. And and I think that's one of the reasons that it's resonated with so many people is it's not a financial book written for people interested in financial books. Yeah, I love it. JL, we're reaching the end of our episode. It is time for the most hard-hitting question we have for you. Are you ready? Probably not, but that's not going to stop you. No, it's not. <laughs> so, JL, we're both from Chicago. And Chicago is famous for pizza. And pizza has very polarizing opinions. Some people love the deep dish. Some people love the New York style. I definitely have an opinion on this. What is your answer? And remember, there is only one right answer, and I hope you get it correct. Well, I, of course, I will give you the one true answer to that question. Thin crust, no question. Oh, my, Did he say thin crust is the answer? My heart is broken. Well, my heart's probably broken from the just pizza clogging up my arteries. It's too bad you only learned this so late in life. Oh, you know, But I remember when I was living in Chicago, I lived in Rogers Park, and there was a, a pizza place there that, that made at least what I thought in those days was terrific pizza. It was JB's was the name of it, and their thing was JB, free Coke with every pizza. And uh, I probably uh, ate half of my meals were JB pizzas that were delivered to the to the apartment. And that was would that be a, have been the eighties? I'm just thinking of what kind of Coke you're talking about. I think you're talking about the oh, drink. <laughs> this is PG rated. I'll shut up. <laughs> it would have been in it would have been in the seventies, and and it would have been Coca Cola. Great. So uh, next week, we're going to continue our conversation with Jail about his new book, Pathfinders. So tune in for that. Thank you so much, Jail, for your time today. Hey, it's always fun hanging out with you guys. Thanks for having me. Likewise. Yes, this has been the Mindy 
And Carl. On Money Podcast with JL Collins, author of The Simple Path to Wealth, author of Pathfinders, author of How I Lost Money in Real Estate Before It Was Fashionable, and owner of The Wrong Opinion About Pizza. (laughs) Deep Dish for Life. I was so good for so long. Cut, cut. (gasps) Did he say thin crust is the answer?